It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to talk about the future of naming and just kind of names in general and why names are important and why we put significance on them. And do we put more significance on them than we actually realize? Uh, so to start off, let's just talk about the power of names. Now, this is something that pops up again and again in folklore, right? And we are all familiar with various fairy tales, like, of course, uh, Rumpelstiltskin being a big one, about how having someone's name gives you some form of influence or power over them, that names themselves are intrinsically powerful. This is an idea that go- goes back to prehistoric times, really. Oh, sure. And, uh, and you know, in, in Jewish tradition, the idea that saying the name of God is a, is a blasphemy because it holds so much power that it's dangerous. Right. Uh, if you go even into more modern uh, uh, concepts, we've got like a, a Lovecraft's idea of Haster, the unspeakable one. I, I've obviously just 
invited Doomed terrible doom because I've actually said his name. Or if you go even more modern with J.K. Rowling and uh, and Harry Potter, you have he Voldemort. Who shall not he be who named. shall not be named because right. to speak his name would be to invoke his power. Or then, uh, Beetlejuice. Yeah, the modern Rumpelstiltskin, right? Uh-huh. You got to you say his name three times to summon him, and then you can only put him back down by getting his name out three times again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, also, uh, the Dresden Files, Jim Butcher books. Right, There's right, the, based highly on that kind of fame mythology exactly. that says that, you know... If, if, if you know the true name, then you can get power over them. But in that case, you not only have to know what the true name is, you have to be able to say it the right way. And someone's true name in that universe changes over time based upon the person's uh, self-perception, you know, how they feel about themselves. People have always perceived the power of naming as something that's really important in, in having mastery over something. Like even if uh, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 2.19, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And this is sort of like this symbolic, like, giving dominion to the earth. Right. uh, You know. Mm -hmm. So the interesting question to me is, I mean, clearly in folklore, we have ascribed a certain amount of power to this concept of names and what names are and how that uh, can can influence both the person named and the person who is naming that person. <laughs> Lots of persons in my world. Yeah. But let's let's talk about uh you know in a in a less sort of a folklore approach or or even a philosophical approach can there be real social effects to names. So you mean just like a scientifically measurable effect. Right, a quantifiable effect perhaps or at least you know is is there any uh indication that names have some sort of actual power beyond just what we hear in these stories well, well yes <laughs> yeah i mean sh- short answer yes podcast is over go home everybody right. um, well i mean i guess we could start with the most obvious thing which is that names obviously will often tell us something about who a person is like the culture they come from or what their parents were like they right. both um connote and denote certain things about a person you know perhaps um where their family is from from right or um or what kind of socioeconomic status they come from or what gender they are or what what race they come from right even. Or, um, or even if their parents leaned conservative versus liberal right. <laughs> depending upon some studies uh, yeah, there's and there's some some kind of scary research about this sort of thing. There was a study that um, Freakonomics did a really good podcast episode on, and we'll see if we can link that on social and send you over to to our enemies. Not that they're enemies. <laughs> we love the Freakonomics guys. Um, uh, that that found that. Okay, so so there are there are traditionally in in America traditionally white names and traditionally black names, and back before the equal rights movement. It, it was it was kind of a mishmash of of everything. The uh, what your name was was not so much of a racial signifier, but through the 1970s that began changing, mm-hmm. uh, mostly due to the Black Power movement and the way that that blacks, especially in racially racially isolated neighborhoods, were thinking about themselves. And and so, you know, it's 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 a really hot button issue, but. It's it's fascinating in a way because uh, so so all of these studies have been done through the 80s and as recently as 2004 that found that if identical resumes marked with black names or white names were sent to employers, the the white names got more interview opportunities. Right. Um, and in <laughs> in that one from 2004, white sounding names had to send 10 resumes to get a callback. Black sounding names 
15 resumes. And that number went down for white names on better resumes, like more developed resumes, but it didn't change that much for the black names with better resumes. Right. So on the surface, that seems to suggest there's at least some level of institutionalized discrimination going on. Also, that that gap didn't decrease for black names who gave addresses in better, more more affluent or more um, educated or whiter neighborhoods. And it huh. didn't even change in companies that used affirmative action. Um, the only the only place that the gap did lessen was in certain Chicago neighborhoods that had higher black populations. Another thing I found interesting in that Freakonomics podcast that kind of relates to this, actually directly relates to this, was the 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 discovery that when a a uh, uh, a black scholar was typing her name into Google, a an ad that popped up that was all about getting background information upon. Uh, the person whose name you type in popped up and said, do you want to see this person's arrest record? And she said, you know, it was a shocking revelation because she's never been arrested. And it was one of those experiences like, you know, you, you immediately get anxiety. You think, well, what, how can this, this incorrect information about me be out there on the internet? When in turn, it turns out it was a, a, an ad just for getting info about whomever you put in there. And it tur- and if you were to put in other names, they discovered, she discovered with a colleague of hers, when they would put in other names that were not, uh, didn't seem to come from a, a black culture, it would give you a, a, the same ad, but a different wording. So instead of saying arrest record, it'd be like, do you want to see so-and-so's background? Right. And, uh, uh, yeah. She, she works at Harvard and, um, and they found that that arrest kind of language would come up 81 to 95% of the time in, um, strongly black suggestive names and only zero to 60% of the time in white suggestive names. Yeah. So the, the question there is, where is this apparently discriminatory, uh, spin coming from? Like, how is that? coming into play. And according to Google, it was not their part. They said they had no no role in choosing what keywords would pull up one version of the ad versus another. And even according to the advertiser, they said that they had put nothing in place. But it may be that's just the behavior of users who click on one type of ad more frequently than the other. And as a result, the algorithms that figure out what is the most likely version of the ad to get clicks? Remember, the, you know, the algorithm is just designed to try and get people to click on the ad. Uh, it may have been that through behaviors of people who are actually using the service, that's why it's showing one version more than another, which means that it may not be a discriminatory thing on part of Google, which is the platform, or the advertising agency, which is providing the ad, but the actual users. So no matter who is at fault, it's a disturbing trend. Right. The positive thing that came out of, and and the study that Freakonomics was talking about specifically was um, a working study published in 2003 by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, it, it found that Having a distinctly black name did not have a negative impact on life outcomes, um, which is, you know, the yay portion of, of this yeah. very sad and scary kind of topic. Yeah, the, the findings seem to be that, um, strangely enough, there are short-term acute measurable effects, but the long-term effects don't show up for some reason. It doesn't seem to determine a person's destiny in the long haul. Uh, Right, right. Uh, their idea was that once a person is known to you, you the what what your name is becomes significantly less important because you're going to start judging them based on 
you know, what you see right in front of you and yeah. how they act rather exactly. than what their name is. So this might make a big difference, say, in getting callbacks initially on just a resume and nothing else. Mm-hmm. But it, once you have an interview or something, it might not make much of a difference at all. Right. Well, and beyond that, the, <laughs> they go so far in the Freakonomics podcast to actually mention that, you know, Let's be realistic. How many jobs are filled simply through the resume process as opposed right. to knowing through, somebody? Yeah, networking. Yeah. Networking is, is huge. I mean, it's one of those things where networking might even things out. And they even said that the name may not be so important. If you're, if you are applying, let's say you're a black person applying to a job where the hiring manager does have some sort of, of, uh, racist attitudes. And if they had received a resume with a black name, that something a name that comes across as from a black culture, they would have just put it aside. But let's say you're a black person who has a name that is not you know, indicative of black culture. It may be a name that many people might associate with white culture. Uh, you get called into an interview, you wouldn't get that job Same anyway. According, hiring manager yeah. still <laughs> right, still right. turns you away, yeah. which you know still shows that there's a, a, a an incredibly unfair bias there. But the the point being that the name itself was not, in that case is not mm-hmm. is not the the. The problem. The problem is the fact that the hiring manager was a racist. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering these days if uh, the greater influence of computer algorithms on choosing resumes to filter through in the first place might start erasing a little bit of that. One would hope. Yes. One would hope that it would be Hopefully one of those. Hopefully, the algorithms aren't racist. Aren't, <laughs> right. Fingers crossed. Well, as long as it's looking for for really quantifiable things that are relevant to the job, you would hope that that would start to disappear. Right. Uh, okay. Well, so. That's an, uh, an interesting and uh, disturbing in the short term, but it seems better in the long term, mm-hmm. uh, a trend we can identify. But that's you can kind of see the root cause of that very easily. Well, it's just racial prejudice. You know, there, there are people who harbor uh, really antisocial attitudes, and that's being manifest in, in certain hiring practices and stuff like that. But what about more subtle ways that names might affect uh, the judgments we make about people? Yeah, you would think, all right, so we have lots of different cultures mm-hmm. represented here on Earth among humankind, lots of different languages, lots of different ideals and ideologies. You would think that uh, there, there really aren't any like universal trends, are there? Well, I mean, let's just look within names that are associated with one culture. Maybe. Okay. Uh, let's assume that there's no prejudice at play or anything like that. I mean, does it make a difference whether your name is Steve or Harry? Uh, depends on if someone's calling you or not. I guess it would, <laughs> you know, make a difference then. If your name is Steve and they just keep calling you Harry, then you're never going to do what they want you to do. I've got something interesting okay. uh, to to posit here. Or not posit. I didn't come up with this idea. <laughs> <laughs> to present. Okay. Uh, I want you all to um, imagine two shapes in okay. your head. Right. Okay. Any two shapes, or do you have something? No, I'm going to describe them. Oh, okay. Right. The shape number one, it's a jagged star kind of shape. All right. Okay. Now imagine shape number two is a uh, rounded, puffy cloud kind of shape. All right. Got it. One of, now these shapes uh, have names in the language of an alien species. All right. And those names are uh, Booba and Kiki. All right. Which shape is which? Just intuitively. I already know the answer to this, so I'm not going to, Lauren. Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've read the psychological studies, so <laughs> I, I so I'm biased, but but I mean, but I genuinely would say that, well, that Kiki has to be the star shape, and Booba has to be the. 
puffy shape. Of course, it just seems obvious. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's like... At least it's to like 95, 95% of the population, it seems obvious. 95% right. of the gen- general population. Yeah. I think the numbers changed based on well, uh, a few different demographics. Yeah. But. Okay. So uh, this experiment was first done by uh, a German psychologist named Wolfgang Kohler in 1929 and published in his book, uh, Gestalt Psychology. Gestalt? Gestalt. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- what he found, was uh, he used slightly different words, but found basically the same things. Instead of Kiki saying Takete, instead of Buba saying Baluba, um, discovered but, 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 the but same that, thing. But that statico kind of kind of consonant thing going on for the sharp one and the round kind of words for mm-hmm. sure. Uh-huh. Um, and so found that there are these really strong associations between the sounds and the shapes, the totally nonsense words, totally abstract shapes. Why should this be? Um, V.S. Ramachandran and Edward Hubbard repeated a similar, uh, basically did the same experiment again. Uh, I think it was in 2001, and they, they used Kiki and Booba. And they found that among two groups of subjects, interestingly enough, from different language groups. So one was a group of English-speaking college students, and one was a group of uh, Tamil speakers from India. And they found among both groups, 95 to 98% of subjects identified the, the shapes the same way. The wow. rounded one was booba, and the jagged one was kiki. Right, which this, this is phenomenal when you sit there and think about how Different languages from different parts of the world, uh, you know, where they don't share a, at least they don't share a common language unless there's some proto language that we well, could talk right. about. Well, I don't even... know if Tamil comes from Indo-European. Lots of languages have really, really long ago ancestors. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. But, sure. but, but, you know, considering that like, that like automatopoeia for different animals can be so different, but yet when you hear it, you <laughs> sort of go like, no, nyan, that's absolutely the sound that a cat makes. Okay. That right. makes perfect also sense. Also, meow. The cow yeah. says shazoo. <laughs> I was like, what? Where's the Celtic? Eastern Europe, apparently. Uh, (laughs) but no, no, like, 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 uh, my example was going to be more about, you know, Asian languages where you have intonation, you have a, a, a tonality to words that is, in, th- that's totally different from things that we'd find in a lot of Western languages where you don't have to worry about a rising tone or a falling tone to a word. If I say a word, whether I'm doing a rising tone or a lowering the tone doesn't change the meaning of the word. It might make it sound like I'm asking a question, but I'm not changing the meaning of the word. Whereas in some Asian languages, that's actually the case where it's not just the pronunciation, but how the inflection is there and, and the, the whether or not there's a specific kind of tone. To me, it's interesting that despite those the sort of very basic differences in the language, you can still find this commonality. Yeah, um, so there are lots of different theories about what might explain this association. Some say that, uh, well, some focus on, oh, is it the consonants in the words or the vowels in the words that cause this? So you can oh. switch them around <laughs> and, and try to mess with that and see if it changes the result. Um, some would say, well, is it um, is it based on the shape your mouth is making when you say the word or something more intrinsic about how the the word sounds to you. Um, it, all very interesting, but the important takeaway is that words aren't neutral. Yeah. I mean, isn't that strange? Just consonants that have the, the no words, predefined right. mm-hmm. 
uh, meaning mm-hmm. still suggest things to the mind in this kind of uh, what's been called like a synesthesia-like mapping. Uh-huh. Interesting. So, so even when we don't have connotations like you know, not that many babies are named Adolf anymore for very, very good reasons. <laughs> right. Um, or or Damien, you know, after yeah. Rosemary's Baby but was kind of unpopular. That would be an association based on history, right? Yeah. Exactly. But these are completely freeform associations, right? So it might be that a baby named Adolf, even if there'd never been a bad person named Adolf. There might be a situation in which, for one reason or another, Adolf sounds like a positive name to people or maybe sounds like a negative one. Yeah, that actually brings me up to uh, – I was going to talk about some of the scholarship done on various various concepts around naming, some, yeah. of, which, some of which seems a little uh, vague to me, but it's – probably because I haven't been able to read the whole paper in a couple of cases. I did get the whole paper for many of these. But one specifically, the first one I wanted to talk about is name valence and physical attractiveness in Facebook, their compensatory effects on friendship acceptance. (laughs) So this one, I read the abstract, but I didn't have access to the full article before we could go into recording. And the reason why I call this one a little vague is here's the abstract, um, uh, or at least here's, here's what I wrote about the abstract. They talked about uh, two factors that can influence whether or not you accept someone's friend request on Facebook. Now, this is, I guess, assuming that you do not already know the person. Mm-hmm. So it's not like some old friend contacting you. It's someone out of the blue contacting you on Facebook to be your friend. And that's that's the definition of your friendship with them. It's a Facebook friend. He said the two factors that they were looking at were attractiveness of the person's photo and the whether or not their name sounded, quote, positive or, quote, negative. I don't know what positive and negative means, but it's not defined within the abstract. So without those definitions, I cannot really say what they're talking about. I mean, were they going with names that are culturally pleasing in the sense that they're very popular at uh, a certain time or that they are unique names or that they just sound like, I I don't know what their criteria are for positive versus negative. So I, I don't know what positive and negative necessarily mean in the context of this study. However, according to the abstract, what happened was they, they found that, uh, it, the more attractive a a picture was, the more likely someone would accept a friend request. The more sure. positive the name, the more likely someone would re- re- accept a friend request. And that if the name sounded more positive, it could balance out a, a picture that was deemed less attractive. To me, this is kind of tricky because attractive and positive are both very subjective terms. So I'm not really sure. Like, did they show this to a robot and the robot gave a thumbs up for attractive and a thumbs down for unattractive? I'm, I'm, Don't I'm, know. Sh- I'm sure that I'm sure that they explained their methodology. I'm sure. I just report. wasn't able to read but, all of it. Yes. But one I was able to read <laughs> was the name pronunciation effect. Why people like Mr. Smith more than Mr. Cahoon. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think I heard about that one. Yeah. Cahoon, by the way, is spelled C-O-L-Q-U-H-U-O-N. And the whole idea is that people who have names that are more easily pronounced tend to have a, a better time of it, it looks like. According to the study, they looked at law firms and they looked at where people fell in the hierarchy of their law firms. And the study said that the people who had more easily pronounceable names rose higher in their law firms than people who had more difficult to pronounce names. Now, this whole pronounce, uh, easy to pronounce versus difficult to pronounce, it didn't matter how long the name was. It didn't matter if the name was uh, was familiar or foreign sounding. It just mattered whether or not it was easy to pronounce. So it doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't mean that someone who has a, a last name that wouldn't normally be found in that region would not rise very quickly compared to others. It just had to be easy to pronounce. If it was hard to pronounce, they didn't rise as quickly, according to this study. Uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, there was another one called, <laughs> it's a study in Germany, which makes sense when you hear the title. <laughs> it pays to be Er Kaiser. Uh, in this one, they found that people who had noble sounding last names tended to have higher uh, positions of authority, even if the last name had no actual connection to any nobility whatsoever. So if you had a last name like Kaiser, uh, then that would mean that, you know, you had the potential to rise more hmm. quickly than people who might have a last name like Becker for you know, a more common right. Uh, the the equivalent name. of like if someone named Vanderbilt versus uh, Clampett came into your office looking for a job. I suppose it's it's hard to say because if you're talking about noble sounding, <laughs> here in the U.S. you might have a a uh, someone with the last name of Prince or King, and I don't know that that would necessarily work. If they had a last name of President, who knows? <laughs> but no, if they had a last name like that was perhaps a a, a presidential last name. That might be more akin. It's hard to say because, you know, Vanderbilts definitely do have a certain connotation. You know, Carnegie would as well. That sort of thing. These these big names in uh, in uh, in American history and uh, spe- specifically in financial history in America. Uh, and the last one I looked at was: Do names matter? The influence of names on perception about professionals in Spain. Now, this one was interesting because it actually found that there did not seem to be a strong correlation between people's perceptions of a person's ability to do his or her job and that person's name. So, if you had a name that was difficult to pronounce, or a name that was uh, by just by the fact the way your name is, if it sounds like kind of a pun or almost like a joke just based on the name, it didn't mean that they felt that you couldn't do your job better or worse than anyone else. It had no no effect, significant effect whatsoever, meaning that at least in this study, the social effect of names was minimal. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we should say that all of these, you know, looking at different studies from around the world. They each address kind of slightly different issues. And they're all from different cultures. Mm-hmm. So there could be some cultural uh, elements at play here, not just, you know, you can't, you, we can't get so objective as to say this is true for the human condition, hands down, doesn't matter where oh, you're absolutely. from or who you are. And it's all tied into really complex, you know, n- not only racial or economic or social issues, but a little bit of all of that and in, in extending to gender as well. Um, uh, uh, an interesting paper I saw out of the National Bureau of Economic Research as well said that, um, that whole boy named Sue story is is pretty accurate. Uh, it found mm. that boys with female sounding names tended to misbehave disproportionately upon entry to middle school mm-hmm. compared with other boys their age and also their own previous behavioral patterns. And or you know, like speaking more colloquially, I don't have specific numbers on this, but um, but but you know, in the publishing industry, there's this perception that people will read that more people, aka more men, will read more books written by men than they will by women, and therefore you get. You know, the publisher telling J.K. Rowling to use J.K. instead of Joanne when she published Harry Potter because they were afraid that little boys wouldn't pick up a book about a magic dude written by a woman. Those little boys don't deserve Harry Potter. (laughs) When it gets to the publishing industry, there's all sorts of weird and wacky rules. I could talk about, you know, my dad's an author and he's written under, I think, at least two pseudonyms uh, besides you know, his own, he's written under his own name as well. And, uh, and I think in, 
at least one of those choices was mandated by his publisher. So uh, the other one may have been his choice. I can't – I'll have to talk to him and ask him. I never asked him why his uh, his mystery series is written under a pseudonym. But uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy because the publishing industry, like they have people who, you know, they they're looking into any way to boost the numbers of sales, and and one of those things is saying like, well, if you're known for writing this kind of book, or you happen to be of this gender, then this other book buying population is never going to touch your stuff. So we have to right, fix right. that. Right, right. When uh, when Nora Roberts changed her name to J D. Robb to write sci-fi action thrillers instead yeah. of the normal romance novels that she writes. All right. So looking at all these different studies, there's some that do suggest that names have at least some social impact. There are others that say it's not that significant. And it looks like in the long run, names may have an impact on that initial uh, reaction, but not necessarily a prolonged impact. Uh, yeah. One idea I want to float is the possibility that the effect of naming could become more pronounced in the future, starting in the present, um, because what did we talk about? Well, the good thing we found out about the, say, the racial prejudice, uh, naming effect was that it didn't seem to play out in the long term, that it was more an, an acute kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but the long term, the ways people have come up with explaining that was about getting to know people and meeting them in person and, and stuff like that. And, and that would counteract some of the negative effects. Um, but I wonder how that might change in, an online economy. So in that world, we get back to that study where, you know, unfortunately, since I didn't have the full thing, I couldn't get, address how specific it gets. But if you're talking about a world where your most of your interactions are through online channels, whether it's, you know, a social networking or otherwise, then things like an attractive photo and a, a positive name could get you further than the alternative, right? So if that's true, then we could kind of jump well jumping to a conclusion is the wrong way of putting it but we could we could draw a a conclusion we could at least propose a hypothesis that a a good name could get you further uh in a, a an increasingly online world that that would be a uh, one of those assets that you could use to get ahead and that furthermore your your given birth name would matter less in that kind of situation because you could give really any name that you wanted to on the internet. I mean, also changing your name in the United States anyway is a pretty easy legal proposition. I mean, it's, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. Right. It's, it's and not, it's not something that requires uh, a huge amount of legwork. Um, I mean, there is some because there's paperwork you have to do in order to have your, your records uh, reflect your new name. Uh, you can't, can't just, just jump off the grid and, huh. and, uh, and create a new identity for yourself despite what numerous movies will tell you. Sure. Uh, although I think that that's getting into a section that we're going to talk about a little bit later. I think right now we were wanting to talk a little bit about how, how we name, um, Inanimate objects. Yeah. So do you guys own anything, like own any electronics or, or equipment or anything that you've given a name to? Uh, My wife had a van named Gladys. Okay. Gladys or GLaDOS? Gla- ma- Gladys. Okay. okay. So it the, matters. So the van is not a lie. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's my, my car. My car has a name. It's uh, Billy the Don Treader. Billy the Don Treader. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Good yeah. name. Now, right? Lauren, you, you said you've, you've named... Most of your vehicles, I've, right? I've named all of my cars, yes. And What's um, happened to all of them besides Billy the Don Treader? They've gotten totaled. So uh, Lauren has a complicated... Only two of them due to my own fault. So, Look, so, that was a number of years ago, and my insurance rates are dropping. So wait, wait. 
only two of them you're i'm not gonna ask how many that's that's <laughs> between that's between you and you uh but no it's it's funny because one of the reasons why we wanted to bring this up is this idea of naming something creates a a, a different kind of connection it's not just this is this thing I own. You, you're giving it kind of an identity. You know, you really are giving it an identity, which means that you might have, you you could at least in my mind develop an emotional attachment to this possession beyond mm. what just saying like this is mine. It may be that you feel for this thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, names are a human trait, and and anthropomorphism is ascribing non-human things with human traits. So when we name anything from, you know, from our pets to our lamps to our cars, etc., uh, toasters, Roombas, um, you, you're, you're, you're ascribing them as being worthy of care and consideration. Of course, the funny thing is almost nobody names their toasters or their lamps, but I think a lot of people name their Roombas. Well, I think that anything that, that has that motion element, yes. like like if it seems to be acting yeah, under it, its own power. It appears to be animate. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, toasters do move. I mean, a couple parts of them will move. but <laughs> In the documentary Ghostbusters 2, they move a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, I can see naming that toaster. Yeah. Um, yeah some, there, there, there was a study, and I don't have it in front of me, that, that a certain number of, of crazy Roomba fans had actually named their... I think it was their, like around two-thirds. Yeah. Was, that's, that's a pretty oh. high number. Of, of a relatively small sample size. Right. Yeah, it was a small sample, but it was uh, among 30 committed Roomba users, 21 of them gave their robots names. So that small sample, but two-thirds of them. And I think it's fair to say... In our experience, like most people who have Roombas for some reason or another name them, a lot of them ascribe, they give them gender too. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, there's this, there was this chapter that I, that I read from a book called Make It So Interaction Design Lessons from Science Fiction that was talking about how, um, people give computers human motivations, ages, genders, and, and interact with them through human social keys, um, you know, with, with persuasion and flattery, which sounds crazy when you're not talking to HAL 9000, but it's something that we all do every day. I mean, how, how often have you yelled at your computer in, in a fit of rage that it just won't load a page or something About like that? About as frequently as I yell at Josh Clark. So, you know, two, three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, like like, think about Think about Clippy, okay? People, oh, please God, don't make me Clippy. think about Clippy. Ugh. See, right? This was a program. This was a computer program. But because it was anthropomorphized and, and it acted without social graces, people get annoyed by that. It's if, if, if Clippy had not had eyes, would we have that reaction to Clippy? I want to straighten Clippy. <laughs> let's, uh, let's also, let's also take a moment here to mention that, um, we've got another, there's another podcast uh, that, that Lauren and I do called tech stuff. And we did a full episode on Microsoft Bob, yes. which followed the same sort of design, uh, approach that, uh, ultimately spawned Clippy. So if you've ever wondered what an entire operating system would look like using the anthropomorphized Clippy approach. It was Bob. Yeah, listen to our episode on Microsoft Bob because we had a lot to say about that. Okay, well, here's a a, a question I want to ask about uh, this idea of more anthropomorphic technology in the home. If we've got smarter things, we've got uh, more autonomously moving things, and we're giving these things names more often, is it going to be harder to get rid of them? I imagine so. I Apart, I can, apart from cost, I can, obviously. I can imagine. I can imagine. Let's, all right, so you know how if you buy a 
uh, a, a laptop computer. After a couple of years, it may end up being the case where your laptop's not performing, maybe the hard drive dies, and you find out that, that repairing your laptop would cost as much, if not more, than buying a brand new laptop. Then in that case, you might think, all right, I'm going to just try and retrieve as much information off this old laptop as possible and just buy a new one. Now let's talk about, let's look into the future where we have more sort of robotic assistant type things. And we have started this this concept of naming, I think, would just continue to be on the rise. I think we'd see more and more people naming these sort of robotic assistants, whatever they might be, whether it's a, a vacuum cleaner or something much more sophisticated. I can easily imagine that if you have developed this kind of emotional attachment to something, that even if you were to find out that repairing it would be more expensive than buying a new one, it'd be a lot harder to just kind of abandon this thing that you've developed this emotional attachment to, to get a brand new thing. It's almost like saying, well, you know, my dog, he's no longer a puppy. (laughs) He doesn't run around and chase the ball as much as he used to. So I'm just going to get rid of him and get a puppy. This one's broken. I'm going to get a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who feel that way, but I can't (laughs) identify with that at all because, you know, I've got a 16 year old dog that I still treat like a puppy. Yeah. And and it's partially that concept of, I mean, you know, like once you give something like R2D2, a nickname. I mean, you you don't call him R two D two. You call him R two, and it's spelled A R E. A R T O. Right, right. You noticed, yeah, the fans who love R two. It's it's a word. It's not the. It's not the letters. The, yeah. yeah, or um, or or Johnny Number Five from from Short Circuit, which is I'm, I'm possibly a terrible example because that's a no, really ridiculous a film. But um, but but you know, once once he gave himself a name, Johnny, it was like, nope, that's a that's a dude. That's a thing right there. We can't. Can't yeah. get rid of him. Well, and so we're humanizing other objects. There's also this other concept in science fiction, the dehumanization by removing names. Uh-oh. THX 1138? <laughs> that's that's what it says in my outline right here. <laughs> <laughs> Dystopian literature and, and film. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, a thing we just all realize is going to happen, right? When the future is taken over by these like nightmarish, icy techno Stalins who are like, I don't want you to have a personality. Or, that, or just corporations. Yeah. They'll say, look, you are not Jonathan. You're 5K914. <laughs> yes. Or, uh, or. <laughs> <laughs> or you know something like uh, in the video game Hitman, where the the character has a barcode, barcode tattooed, tattooed on the back of yeah. his neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is this ever really going to happen? Uh, I think that I think that calling Jonathan. I mean, just having to yell across the office like like five K nine what four two. Uh, you turn those notes into me. I mean, that's that's a yeah. huge. That's you that's, know what kind of reaction that would get. Well, it would be a very rude one. <laughs> uh. Or as another example, this is not just a science fiction thing, and this is not a new concept. Uh, if you are familiar with the the uh, the novel Les Misérables, the character yeah. Jean Valjean is given a number in prison two four six zero one, which becomes yeah. very important. That's how he's identified by uh, the the antagonist Javert. He he doesn't call him by name most times. He right. calls him by that number. It's a dehumanization concept. Or or, or in a very tragic example, um, the people who were placed in the internment camps and in Nazi Germany during the Holocaust were were given numbers that right. they were referred to instead of names. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there are actually countries today that regulate naming. Now, it's certainly uh, not as as awful as that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, for example, uh, in Iceland, uh, let's say you want to name your child. Well, you can't name it just anything you want. In fact, uh, there are government guidelines, and the government has to approve the name you give your child. Just, for example, there there are some countries – and Iceland is one of them where apparently the name of your child is supposed to reflect the child's gender. Huh. Huh. Yeah. So uh, you're not supposed to give a boy name to a girl and you're not supposed to give a girl name to a boy. Uh, that seems kind of. Uh, Archaic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some kind of reasoning behind this, but it may be something from ye olden days. Mm-hmm. Well, it is um, interesting because there are some names that have changed over time where it was identified as either a masculine name at one time and then changed to a feminine name at another time well, or or, uh, it, or women these days who who go by the names uh, Sam or Chris or something that yeah. was traditionally if you yeah. think of a person whose first name is Blair what what sex do you think that person is I usually think female yeah well it, it turns out in Iceland that's supposed to be a boy's name but there is a, a girl who uh, was born 15 years ago um, to a mother named Bjork uh, Eid's daughter. And uh, she, uh, this girl was named Blair. And so she's grown up with the name Blair. But apparently she uh, just recently had to fight a court battle in Iceland to get her name recognized by the state. Like on her passport, it just had this placeholder name that said girl because the state would not res- uh, accept Blair. As a girl's name. As a name. girl's name. It's supposed to be a boy's name. Well, finally, the, she won her court case and, and well, got good. her name recognized. <laughs> There's a case uh, of a German boy uh, being named Matty, and that was uh, a name that was turned down, M-A-T-T-I, that was turned down because the sex of the baby um, oh. was Ow. not obvious from that name. That's wild. This is the 21st century, or, or I guess that was the 20th century, but lay down in it. That's yeah. Yes. Um, so the, uh, in, in lots of countries also, there are not just restrictions on, say, like uh, the, the gender alignment of a name, but there are restrictions basically on, on matters of taste, like uh, babies named Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden have been outlawed in Germany. Wow. Um, well. Though, yeah. I mean... I guess then again, you can see why you wouldn't want kids to have those names. Yeah, but outlawing <laughs> it seems a little bit extreme. I feel like that's the kind of, I mean, I don't know. I, yeah. I feel like that's something that the government doesn't necessarily need to have a say in. Like, it, if, if those parents can't culturally for themselves decide that that baby should not be named that thing, then... <laughs> yeah, on one hand, you could say, well, this is to protect the, the child who has no choice in his or her name. And yet we'll have to deal with the consequences of having that name. Up until the point at which they can legally change it right. themselves. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I definitely can see both sides of it. I, I agree more with you, Lauren, than with, with, than with the government's approach in this case. But, uh, at the same time, I, I can at least see some sense in it. Just, just going like, that's child abuse, make it stop. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, yeah, kind of it's thing. tough. It's tough. I mean, I mean, and I, I don't know, it's strange. Like I, like having the name Lauren, um, which, also spelled differently usually can can be a boy's name. Um, I've had a few people either send like junk mail kind of stuff or call me going like, hey, Mr. Vogelbaum. And I'm like, nope, that's not a dude. Hmm. Sup? Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's wrap this up, guys. Let's talk a little bit. <laughs> let's wrap this up, this discussion up with a little talk about uh, naming in, in the scientific world. Well, okay. Yeah. So 
you might say that there could be a scientific approach to human beings in which a serial number would be more efficient than having a name like Jonathan Strickland. Because That's ridiculous. If you know from Googling, Jonathan Strickland on this podcast is not the only Jonathan Strickland. I'm sure there are lots of Yeah, there's a young people. African-American pilot. Uh, there are quite a few people in jail. Uh, none of them are me. Um, I there's a representative, I, I think, in Texas. I share a name with uh, some kind of person who's big in like the Ohio health department or something okay. like that. I don't know. I am shockingly enough the only Lauren Vogelbaum on this planet, from what I can tell. You're a special snowflake. I Vo- yeah. Vogelbaum is is a pretty pretty rare, pretty rare. Not that many bird name. trees. Well, but um, anyway. But so, but so for all of you who have slightly more common names, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I, I can, and this is why things like social security numbers were were invented because it's a lot easier to have this nine digit signifier than to go like Jonathan Strickland. Is that Jonathan Strickland one through a hundred? Like, like yeah. which one? Is there was it? even but, another Jonathan Strickland in the in the college I went to. Who? Yeah. Who's oh, that's got to be complicated. Yeah, just one chain, one difference in our middle initials, and that was it. Uh, so there are uh, lots of other things than people we might want to apply this same kind of specificity to right the, so the social security number concept what about um species of organisms well i mean really when we get here the the naming isn't so much a problem as is the taxonomy which is the idea of uh not just not just naming something, but having figuring out where it fits within a larger context. Well, right, but um, I mean, before we even got to the binomial nomenclature we use today, I mean, think about how confusing biology must have been a lo- before we had specific, unique names for every species. When it's like <laughs> then, you know, biology was pretty much called <laughs> "Let's <laughs> cut this thing open and see yeah, what the future you're, is." You're trying yeah, to study <laughs> spiders, and it's like, well, we have a brown spider and another brown spider, and this is a black spider. And well, I, I think it was also pretty confusing because people had such a low grip on um, science in general <laughs> com- compared to what we know today. I'm sure that you know Star Trek era people would say the same thing about I, us. But yeah, but the biological but so, classification. I mean, the idea of classifying things so that you can have a meaningful scientific discussion about them dates back to the ancient Greeks. It's uh-huh. not something that is brand new. Although um, they did think that bees were related to like maggots or something like that at one point, well, which yeah, is pretty there, cool. There were there were a lot of uh, mistakes were made, and we corrected them <laughs> as time went on. Uh, so so generally speaking, if you're going with the classical nomenclature approach, you're looking at the uh, the seven main ranks in in biology. Uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. And genus and species tend to be what we refer, what we use when we, when we're talking about a specific animal. We use mm-hmm. the genus and the species to identify that animal. Uh, now these, these classifications were based upon morphology. It was based upon the, the appearance and the apparent structure of these animals. So we grouped them together based upon that. But that was before we had genetics, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, we had genetics the whole time. We just didn't study it very much. Uh, the, uh, the, but no, no, it was before we understood much about genetics. You're right. And, and so, uh, the, <laughs> so, so with this, this classic kind of morpho- morphological approach, uh, you might have two critters that 
on the surface appear very similar, but in fact come from very different ancestors uh, through convergent evolution or some other means. And so you may not have them grouped in the best way if you want to talk about groups of animals that are actually related to one another. And that's what brings us to the phylogenetic nomenclature uh, approach, which is where you're trying to group animals based upon that common ancestor. They're grouped into clades, is essentially what they're called. And in this clade, you, you're you're uh, looking at an ancestor that then created all these. You know, the descendants the are branches. are all the different mm-hmm. branches. Yeah, you're looking at kind of like a tree, and. Uh, you could look at things like primates, and primates have lots of different uh, little little uh, branches that branch off of that. You've got the the we're lemurs, a, we're and a bushy bush, loris, yeah. You've got monkeys, you've got apes, and then apes are their own clade. That's a subclade within the clade of primates because apes include all the great apes as well as you know the the manned and all that kind of stuff. But if you were to say monkeys, that's not a clade unto itself because there are different. Uh, monkeys that have slightly different uh, ancestors that are within the primate clade, but they themselves, the monkeys, do not have their own distinct clade. Okay. You see? So, because uh, they're, you can find monkeys in different parts of the world that do not have a common ancestor until you get back to that primate that ancestor. Mm-hmm. So, the well, idea... That useful. Yeah, it's, it's useful in the sense of you can... You can uh, classify animals together in a way where you can have a meaningful discussion about how they're related to one another or not related to one another. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we actually change the way we name things because it's more about the the overall taxonomy as opposed to the individual species name. Right. We're not going to stop calling a, a, a dog a canine. Just, you know, right. it's... Right, right. Just because Unless we, we find out it came from a lobster or something. Okay, so in, in that case, perhaps. <laughs> well, uh, they're just really cute lobsters. I want, I want a lobster dog. Well, there, there are other things that we'd have to talk about that we need, you know, specificity for. Like in in chemistry, for example, chemicals are very important that we that we're very specific. Obviously, if you're talking about mm-hmm. chemical reactions, you have to be sure you're talking about the, ex- the the exact chemicals involved. And if you happen to be using some general terms. You may not have the specific chemical you were thinking of, and the and the mixture will turn out wrong or possibly explosive. Well, there are lots of uh, familiar names for chemicals, but then there are also technical names right. for chemicals. So, so you have a scientific name that's basically a word that's put together by algorithm. Yeah, the scientific name tends to to reflect things like the chemical process that happened in order for that chemical to exist. Uh, it's got a lot of different references within the name itself, which means that some of these names get pretty long. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, t- today we've, we've got the, um, those, those long chemical names versus the, um, uh, proprietary names that people give to a drug, for example, sure. when it's going to go out. Well, there's the example I was going to give was, uh, the one that, that Joe pulled up was the, the largest known protein, which is Titan. T-I-T-I-N, named after Titan, T-I-T-A-N. Its scientific name, which was designated by the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, (laughs) is um, too long for me to pronounce. I mean, literally, (laughs) it would take three hours for me to pronounce it. I am not kidding. It has 189,819 letters in it. It's uh, considered the longest word in the English language if you count it as a word. Yeah, which not all people do. But yeah, that's that's a long word. Eh, there's and no spaces in it. It's a word. <laughs> if you're a lexicographer, you might disagree. But uh, anyway, so that's that's another example of where specificity is needed. And then there uh, the the concept of naming stars. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that's complicated as it turns out. I mean, you know, okay, so, so there's common names that we all know stars by, perhaps. Um, At least some stars, a small sample of the stars that exist. The, the, the very bright ones that are very obvious in yeah. your particular region of the world might have a common name, like but, Proxima um, Centauri or something. Sure. Well, well, those, those are actually named by the Bayer designation, which comes from about 1603 and is based on the brightness of a star within its given constellation. And, and this mm. is the, the Western concept of constellations, of course. I mean, not of course, but but that's where... That's, that's what happened. That's what happened, yeah. So that's based on Greco-Roman constellations, which is just so incredibly Earth-based that I'm sitting here trying to imagine future space travelers going like, like, where's the centaur in the sky? Really, guys? Are we still <laughs> using this? This is ridiculous. But then even well, the designation for stars that we've we've discovered only through the use of powerful telescopes still have an Earth-based designation because... We're giving them coordinates, right? Oh, well, sure, and you know, and all of the other designations that are that are out there. I mean, you know, we we've switched to a bunch of different ones over the years, and you know, some use numbers to designate brightness within a constellation. Some use um, uh, ascension in the sky, like right ascension instead of brightness. And but it's all just it's all really just the same. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you lived on another planet, and let's say that we're going to go ahead. Uh, few thousand years and humans have colonized different uh, areas of space, then if you're referring to the old naming system of stars, it may not be as meaningful to you because what was the brightest star in a constellation on Earth? And let's say we found some magical faster than light travel where we can go really, really far into the universe may not be the brightest star in that constellation. In fact, there might not be even a constellation from your perspective. And the, you know, the way you look at it, you don't see that same sort of shape. So you would have to refer to the name either through an archaic and largely meaningless system, or we'd have to come up with a brand new way of naming stuff. Yeah, it would be like still using hours and minutes after we leave the Earth. You no, know, it or might, it, we parsecs. Might, or... Right. We might just have to do it for convenience sake. But guys, 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 I've got a solution. Because I saw this website. And on this website, for 50 bucks, you can name a star. So that's how we do it, right? We just pay the 50 bucks and we just start naming stars. Problem solved, right? Jonathan, as as we have talked about previously on the show, maybe you were absent that day, even though you were sitting here. Um, you, you can you cannot you cannot give a star. I mean, you can give a star a name, in that you can uh, call up that company and have them put a line in their database next to that star's designation and say that that's the name that you have given it. But star's official names are given by the International Astronomical Union, and and. You cannot call them and give them fifty dollars and and name no, a star. No, that and is these, not how that and does. And these other businesses, you don't even know if they're really putting a name next to a database. Not that it would matter if they did or didn't. They're they're really just printing you a certificate, um, yeah. which which you can do yourself. And I recommend that you do that if you really want to name a star. I'm I'm launching the PowerPoint uh, uh, wizard right now. Or um, get yourself a really good telescope and start looking for new stars. Oh, do you get to name a star if you discover it? Um, there. There are rules. <laughs> there, 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 there are really complicated rules. They, I, I opened up a fact sheet on it, and I was just like, "Well, I'm not going to understand this this afternoon, so I'm just going to close this again." Um, yeah, but- I don't, I don't have a telescope powerful enough to detect anything that hasn't already been detected. I think. Uh, there, there's always going to be a um, numerical designation, and the IAU recommends several different methods of giving them that kind of designation. And there's usually also a um, a letter designation that's going to talk about what galaxy 
and or maybe what constellation it's in. Interesting. Well, anyway, the I, I think that kind of wraps up our whole discussion here. The whole idea about names having power. Obviously, there is something to it beyond just these these stories that we've heard in folklore and fairy yeah, tales. Psychologically, it's important. Yeah, uh, and you know, just practically, it's important. Obviously, I mean, it's if we didn't have names, I wouldn't know what to call these chuckleheads sitting across from me. <laughs> so. Anyway, we want to invite all of our listeners, as always, to go and visit fwthinking.com. That's the site where we've got all the links to our videos, our podcasts, our blog posts. We've got articles up there. We've got lots of information that you've got to check out. Make sure you go there. And remember, if you want to follow us online, you can find us at fwthinking, both on Facebook and on Twitter. And we'll talk to you again in the future. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.